Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. If the Chinese start to think about securing strategic supplies, uh, then the chances that they're going to do something with Taiwan skyrocket. They are very much worried about key imports being used as a weapon against them. That for me is a big worry. Uh, and I think if that did happen, you'd have to really uh, wonder where markets would go on that one. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Russell Clark. Russell, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, clearing houses and some of the kind of bubbling risks uh, in the financial system. We're going to talk a lot about Russia and Ukraine. And finally, I want to get your thoughts on food inflation, because I think your thesis uh, that was sounded funny a year ago is definitely being proven out uh, for sure. Uh, before we get into that, though, I know you've been on the show before and many listeners will be familiar with who you are, but could you just give a super quick intro to your background, uh, kind of some of the investing you've been doing over the course of the last uh, you know couple of decades and what you're focused on now? I started off in Australia, um, and I lived in Japan for a lot, a lot, a long time. Uh, sort of in my teenage years and early twenties, um, and eventually, uh, you know, I got a job at a bank in, in Sydney, and then uh, I managed to move to London and uh, start on an emerging market fund all the way back in two thousand two. Um, and from there, you know, after a few years, eventually I got my own fund, uh, and then eventually had my own firm. Uh, but I've recently sort of given back capital last year. Uh, and now, you know, I'm running a sub stack and doing personal investing. A lot of that was driven by, I think, um, a world where the rules are changing a bit, um, where the old investing rules or the old political rules don't hold sway anymore. And actually what we see, you know, this, this year with Russia, for example, is a good example of, of how we're in a world that's changing a lot. Um, so, you know, for me, I still feel like uh, uh, I add more value uh, you know, analyzing and talking to people now than, than managing money because I don't quite get the rules, even though I can still sort of see parts of it, if that makes sense. What were the rules in your mind of investing before? How are they changing? So I think, you know, where from a sort of after the sort of inflationary shock of the 70s, um, we had a sort of a change um, in emphasis of government policy. Uh, one that went from emphasizing rising real, real wages for, for labor, uh, so making sure that workers always had more money in real terms every year, to one that's become much more focused on making sure that corporates uh, are maximizing profits and the return on capital as high as possible. Um, and what that meant in practical terms until very recently was also, uh, so when a country devalues, I've always disliked countries that devalue because for me, when you're devaluing, you're really uh, reducing the real wages of your workers um, and you're sort of stealing mm. uh, growth from your trade partners. But it, it used to happen with sort of regular, uh, you know, it used to be a very regular occurrence in that, you know, a country would get expensive and then it would devalue and reset and move on. Um, and that's normally how, you know, I sort of analyze things. Uh, and, the idea behind devaluation was you were trying to attract your capital flows uh, because suddenly your workforce became more uh, competitive and then you could grow your exports. And that was just a cycle. And so, and you were free to uh, you know, build your factory wherever you wanted. 
wherever you got the best return, and you're free to invest uh, your capital into whatever bond or equity market uh, gave you the highest return. Now, what I'm what I think has been happening over the last five to six years is that uh, government after government after government is starting to reject this outcome uh, because it, it does ultimately create income inequality um, and financial instability. And so we, I think we're moving to a new environment. Um, you know, and what does that mean for investing and other things is still for me a little bit uncertain. But certainly one of the big changes for me has been how currencies uh, react differently to how they used to react. Um, uh, mm. So it's been a big surprise. A good example this year is you would normally have expected uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine to lead to the yen to rally quite significantly as it's an old safe haven type trade. Um, but yen has been you know, substantially very weak uh, this year. Um, and you've also seen surprisingly Bond yields have also been rising this year, uh, even with you know, even though you have this sort of fear of war coming through, um, uh, and you've also seen a very very weak Chinese equity market and other things. And I think this is all fitting into these views. the The big mystery question is if and when does the U.S. follow down this route of um, you know perhaps favoring labor over capital? I know Biden is keen to do it. Um, but you've yet to see a, a rise in the minimum wage, for example, uh, even with food prices going up. So there's a, I think we're in this sort of period of change, um, but it hasn't quite realized yet, if that makes sense. When you say this transition from, uh, you know, sort of capital to labor, what would that actually look like? And maybe this is a good time to kind of touch on um, just your theory about kind of the connection between food inflation and bond prices as well. Actually, if we could start there, like how do you see the connection in between food prices, uh, bond yields, and then maybe we can we can go from there? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, uh, if you look at the transition we have sort of from the 70s and 80s um, to you know, higher interest rates and then lower commodity prices, so what you find is like the food inflation was very, very quiescent. Uh, and if you look at like wheat, until recently, wheat price was the same price as it peaked out in 74. Um, uh, and if mm. you can get a very long history of bread inflation or white bread inflation in the States as well. And so all of that was under control. So in, 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 in my view, it makes sense. If you are, fav- if you are keeping real wages down, then it's actually very difficult to raise the price of food because people don't have enough money to buy it anyway, right? So, and that's also food tends to be very labor intensive. So, you know, if wages are staying down, food prices also staying down. And so that was for me the big transition. Um, some people, you know, one of my friends says, you know, uh, free market is a very free market methodology or ideology is very good. It's a very good way of efficiency or crane efficiency when you have uh, uh, you don't have enough supply so if there's a limit in supply uh, of something free market is the best way to get maximum efficiency from that right uh, the corollary of that argument is that when you have excess of everything socialism is better because you don't need <laughs> you don't need to be efficient you just need to you, you're just trying to divvy it up uh, on, on people's needs. 
um, which I thought was a very you know, good way of thinking about. Uh, and so I think like after World War II, there was plenty of excess capacity uh, in most places. Uh, and, you know, and there was certainly this strong political will not to repeat the depression of the 30s or the struggles of the 40s. Uh, and so it was a pro, pro-labor. Um, but I think by the 60s and 70s, we sort of come to the end of that. Um, um, we've come to the end of that sort of, of uh, that period. Yeah. You know, one thing that, you know, I love in your thesis and just makes a ton of sense to me is, you know, when you think about CPI, core CPI, however, central banks kind of measure inflation, uh, you know, the one thing that no one has any choice about what to spend on is food, right? Uh, so it makes a lot of sense to me, I mean, kind of connecting these ideas of wages and food, because obviously when the price of food goes up, you know, it's, it's essentially a tax on everyone, right? So wages follow. I guess my question to you is, where do you see the causal arrow there? Do you see it as when food prices eventually start to tick up, workers will demand uh, more, more so that they can basically afford food? Do they, do you, like, how do you see the causal arrow or the connection between those two yeah. things? Yeah, well, I think the, the big change for me came uh, back in sort of 2015-16. Um, so every other country I'd studied, when they sort of had a property boom and then a bust and excess credit, uh, they normally chose to devalue to create the inflation that helps get the debt down and helps to make the adjustment back mm. to make you more efficient again. Uh, and so China was definitely getting into that uh, that period where it started to have uh, problems. And yet in the, poli- the government policy was ex- it was actually very explicitly, no, we're not going to devalue, we're going to keep the currency strong um, and we're going to make the adjustment internally if we need to. Um and I was very surprised by that. I thought, you know, this is not something I've ever seen before. And I really had to go back and look, uh, you know, back a long way uh, into sort of economic history to find where that was from. And, you know, what it is is, mm-hmm. you know, a view of trying to protect uh, real wages. And actually, if you, you know, the closest thing we've got is, you know, back when we're on the gold standard. I mean, the gold standard is is a sort of explicit way of making sure money can always buy the same amount of food. So you have very strong wages, you know, don't get adjusted downwards. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, what's been interesting is what you've seen is uh, food prices in uh, China, strangely, as far for pork prices, which is the most important one, have come right back down again, uh, somewhat intriguing. And rice prices are also... Uh, under control, but you know the, the Chinese policies, I think, uh, have caused the equity market to be very, very weak, um, caused the currency to be very strong, but has actually started to create food inflation in the rest of the world. And where uh, I'm like sort of scratching my head, uh, so my sister-in-law is Japanese, and I was talking to her the other day, and she was like, "I don't understand the Bank of Japan's policy. It's it's, it's just making everyone poorer." they have no wage increases in japan the yen is super super weak and now commodity prices are going up all the time um and so you know she noticed that the policies just seem to be ones that you know are making people poorer and you can make uh, some similar arguments in the states you know certainly inflation now is only a very high prices second-hand car prices are up a lot you know so all the things that you know relatively poorer people 
you know, you'd spend a lot of money on, it'll become more expensive. Rent is up a lot as well. Uh, so it's like, hmm, you know, there's this sort of divergence happening. And, you know, what you're starting to see is, in some ways, China is becoming the center of the pricer of commodities. And they're keeping their currency strong, keeping their real income strong, which is causing commodity prices to rise. And the rest of the world, who are running very, very loose monetary policies, are actually getting poorer. Uh, it's great for the stock market, but it's, it's sort of creating this, this dichotomy now. Um, and the question is, you know, how does that get resolved? Or it doesn't get resolved. In my mind, it feels like uh, politically, I think we've come to the, we've come as far as we can with the sort of uh, pro-capital policies that we've seen in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like that to me. I'm not, so I'm not American. I don't live in America, but it just feels like uh, there's a groundswell of problems that it's caused that, you know, doesn't need to, you need some sort of change. Uh, we're just yet to see that manifest itself politically. Maybe to transition sort of to the next part of our conversation here, obviously there's a conflict going on in Ukraine and Russia. The, you know, part of the implication there is a, they're, they're huge producers of wheat, right, generally to the world uh, and other commodities. So, you know, we're talking about food inflation beginning to ramp up, you know, along with other buckets like energy, et cetera. But, you know, how do you see this problem changing or potentially getting worse now that, you know, there's this conflict in supply chains and, you know, access to basic raw materials for food production could be compromised? Ukraine is sort of blessed with the best land in the world. Uh, you know, and back in World War Two, you know, Hitler and Stalin had this pact, which Hitler then broke because he needed the food that the Ukraine could produce. And essentially when he you know, invaded, invaded Russia and tried to get Ukraine, uh, they destroyed all the crops, they salted the land, did all this other stuff. And that is what started to cause a great hunger and you know, was the, end, the beginning of the end really for, for, the, for the Germans in that war. Um, and you know, now we have this n- another um, <clears throat> you know, invasion into Ukraine what I find very strange is that it's, you know, it's definitely pushed up uh, grain prices. Uh, also vegetable oil. Uh, you, the Ukraine's a huge exporter of sunflower oil. So what it's had is a knock-on effect on other oil, particularly palm oil, which is heavily used in Asia. Um, so what you've got is this sort of, what seems to me like quite a negative outcome for China as a, you know, now becoming a big food importer. Um, but they seem to be okay with it, which, you know, part of me makes me make, makes me wonder if China looks at the sort of conflict or it has with the U.S., um, realized it was going to become a structural food importer and sort of, you know, sort of okayed a Russian invasion of Ukraine with the idea that it, it means that the Ukrainian exports and Russian exports will now become uh, non-U.S. aligned. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so again, a sort of strategic, uh, a strategic view to sort of secure food supplies. Um, I'm wondering if that was the sort of logic that was going on. And it's very hard to tell with China. No one really knows. Uh, you know, yeah, not even the Chinese know. So you're sort of guessing. Um, when I, unfortunately, when I go down that line of logic, uh, which is. And my, so I, you know, first went to China back in 1990 as like a teenager. Uh, my brother was studying there. 
Uh, and China's always been pretty much the same. They just want to get richer. Uh, they just want to you know improve living standards. They don't have much interest in you know uh, the rest of the world. They just want to get richer. And I've always found China very easy to understand. Russia more difficult. China pretty simple. Uh, but if they did you know okay this Russian invasion for food supplies, that has huge. And this is a big if, right? But it has a it does imply some huge shifts in the way China thinks about the world um, and means, you know, for example, you'd have to think that, um, you know, that they may be worried about other supplies of goods that they rely on that are not secure. So, for example, the U.S. has been, you know, doing its best to reduce supply of advanced semiconductors to, to China. Right, uh, and that, and they also you know, basically tried to destroy Huawei, um, and so you know if the Chinese are starting to think about securing strategic supplies, uh, then the chances that they go and do something with Taiwan skyrocket. Uh, you know, and you know if there was an invasion of Taiwan, uh, their markets would be far different. Yeah, you know, and the world would be very different. I mean. You know, Taiwan basically has a monopoly on the high-end, uh, high-end chip exports to the rest of the world, and so this is like in the fog of war. You know what I really don't know is is how close is the Chinese relationship to Russia? Are they just using them? And if they are, is it because they've shifted in mindset? And to just give you some background to this, right? Uh, so I did an Asian studies degree at university, and. You know, Japan started to invade like Manchuria, Korea, Taiwan, again to try and secure supplies uh, uh, because they were worried about being uh, sort of cut off by the other powers. I mean, the, the thing I always remember about that was that Japan started to become a competitor to Britain. So, for example, Japanese started to export textiles to India, which previously Britain had had the 100% market share on. And as soon as they started to do that, the Brits basically put up tariffs on Japanese imports to basically say, no, you can't come into this market. Uh, and, you know, the Japanese sort of looked at it and went, oh, okay, you know, look, they're not really our friends. It's, we're competitors now. And then they started to think more strategically about securing resources, particularly coal, which is why they invaded Manchuria. Um, and, you know, that was the beginning of Japan becoming very military uh, and starting to become... Um, starting to become much more aggressive. Um, and interestingly, uh, uh, I discovered the other day, so Japan and Russia had a war in 1905, uh, uh, 1905 mm -hmm. uh, which Russia lost. And the shame was so much, which it caused the first civil war in Russia, like the white civil war, uh, which then led to the red civil war, which is what basically brought in the uh, communists all the way back in 1913. Huh. Really? So, you know, you've got these big things playing out. Um, and so the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, is China, um, China has always been very, you know, China has always, for me, always been pretty reliable in how it does, does things. Um, but if they have moved to this more, you know, securing strategic resources, uh, you know, it implies that um, there is much more, yeah, the, 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 the risk of a Taiwanese sort of invasion is way, way higher than what Marco is pricing at the moment. And that's what, that, that's what scares me.
let me just make sure I'm following the the line of logic here. So basically, if Russia or if China okayed the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that would be that could be seen as a move to secure the food supplies of Ukraine, right? Because just from an international relations standpoint, it'd be less they'd be less okay shipping to the US. Got it. Uh, and the reason that they might be doing that is because of if you are going to make a move on Taiwan, you have a pretty good understanding of how the world would react. Definitely more so, honestly, than the reaction has been for uh, you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you would need to, at that point, have some things uh, battened down. The number one thing being food. Is that is that the correct line of reasoning? Well, you know what I would say is, if they okay the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it means they are very much worried about uh, their you know key imports being used as a weapon against them. So food has now become a key import, and they're not. They get a lot of food from U.S. allies, so Brazil, Australia, U.S. Um, and Ukraine was a big supplier, but Ukraine was sort of moving into the EU orbit, and maybe they were concerned about that, which is why they okayed the the Russian invasion. Now, if that is the sort of if you take that line of logic as we need to secure food supply, the other area that they really need to secure is uh, semiconductor supply, which is currently mainly from Taiwan, mm. Korea, Japan. Um, and, you know, they've historically always wanted to reunify uh, the mainland with Taiwan. And so if that is, if Russia, Ukraine is showing the change in Chinese thinking, then the next logical thing is that they go and uh, invade Taiwan sooner rather than later um, uh, to secure the semiconductor supply, um, because that is a big sort of strategic weakness for them. Um, and... To be honest, you know, the sanctions that the U.S. has put on has made it almost impossible for China to develop its own semiconductor industry domestically. Uh, so essentially, to make high-end uh, semiconductor chips, you need the ASML lithography uh, machines. And basically, under mm. U.S. pressure, uh, ASML will not license them to the Chinese anymore. Um, so if you're always, if you're, you know, if you're a, if you're a student of history, it's sort of like, you know, if you st- if you act like enemies, and eventually you will, you will become enemies. It's sort of this sort of self. Because. Like Russia, no one ever had a beef with Russia, but you know, Putin was sure that everyone else had a beef with him, so he just kept acting like everyone had a beef with him. And now we do have a beef with him because he's gone out, you know, and, and invaded Ukraine. Um, but I mean, that's sort of how you know a lot of history works. Uh, and yeah, I just, that for me is a big worry. Uh, and I think if that did happen, you'd have to really, uh, wonder where Marcus would go on that one. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast growing crypto native funds, crypto banks, exchanges and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. 
And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. So sanctions have been a part of uh, certainly foreign policy for the United States for a long time, freezing certain you know, bad actors out of the, the financial ecosystem, so to speak. I think the sanctions being levied against Russia, particularly the freezing of assets from their central bank, are extremely significant. And we were kind of talking about this before we hopped on the interview here. You kind of walk us through how you think about that. Uh, like, A, do you see it as being a significant event? And then B, what are some of the consequences that you see arising from it? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I think, you know, is interesting is that, you know, back in the sort of after World War II and pre-World War II as well, the gold standard, so, you know, central banks used to hold gold and that would be a way of proving the, the credit worthiness of their, of their, of their currency. Uh, and, I, you know, I, what I could see about this sort of gold standard is that it did mean that currency was pegged to a commodity, which meant that your wages would, would stay more or less in line with what uh, food prices were doing, for example, right? So, you know, I could see the logic of that. And then we went off the gold standard in the 70s, you know, uh, the dollar declined, commodity price went up, real wages declined a lot, and it became too much of a problem, so we moved to a new system. And then what we've seen over the last sort of 20, 30 years, uh, started by Japan, but embraced by all of the East Asian nations, is rather than buying gold, they've been buying treasuries uh, or buying bonds. Uh, so building up foreign reserves to, to a greater degree. And that's been great for the states. It means they've been able to borrow very cheaply. Um, there's always demand for treasuries. Now, but when you look at what's happened with Russia, you know, overnight, uh, the Western world has sort of cut China's, uh, sorry, Russia's access to its foreign reserves. Um, and, you know, so they don't have them. The currency depreciate, you know, even though the oil price is up a lot uh, and they've you know, not been able to access them, you can't help but think that, you know, other countries would look at that and go, okay, well, maybe, you know, foreign reserves held in treasuries is not a safe haven or not the safe, safe asset that I thought it to be, you know, because I can get access can be cut off uh, uh, almost immediately. And so you could possibly see a shift back to buying physical real assets, um, which again was what we were, you know, that was the mentality we tried to end after the huge inflationary uh, shock of the 70s was, you know, you need to hold commodities and real assets because they're anything that held their value. Um, you know, so it almost becomes self-fulfilling that, you know, if, uh, you know, gold starts to rise and all the other commodities start to rise and then you start to need, you create this sort of uh, political pressure for wages to rise, which then causes commodity rise. We go back into the wage wage price uh, cycle that we used to see. And I think that's, you know, certainly if I was Chinese, you know, I'd be wondering why I owned, still owned a trillion dollars worth of US treasuries. Uh, and then you sort of think, well, where on earth are they going to put all that money if they decide to want to get out of treasuries? Um, I don't know. Uh, and so, you know, it's, I think that could be ultimately what that sanction, or that action on their own Russian uh, foreign reserves could be the, the, the really lasting effect of 
sanctions and have a much bigger change than what we currently feel it does. You know, my understanding of the current monetary system is we're working on, right, post Bretton Woods and the eventual failure of the Bretton Woods system, goldback system, what we now have is something that looks like a petrodollar system, right? Where essentially the US dollar has moved from being backed by gold to one that's backed by the oil market. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've kind of went out and struck deals with some of the big oil producing nations, Saudi Arabia being kind of the chief one. I uh, said, hey, look, you know, we'll give you XYZ security protections, uh, whatever, and you in turn price your, your dollars in, in oil. What's interesting about the observation that you just made is we're starting to see that system fracture as well, right? So I don't know if you saw there's a big headline in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago that Saudi Arabia is apparently unhappy with the United States and they're considering pricing oil in yuan, uh, right, instead. So this has been talked about before, but apparently it's looking more serious. There was also a deal struck between Russia and China before this entire Ukraine invasion, uh, you know, that there was a 30-year, you know, gas deal basically with this pipeline and it was going to be settled in euros instead of dollars. So I guess my question to you is it's it's starting to look like the combination of sanctions, uh, you know, and, and people saying, hey, maybe these uh, maybe the these U.S. Uh, denominated assets are not the best thing to hold in. And, and then also the underlying mechanism of the petrodollar, right, which is ooh, maybe we actually aren't going to price all of these oil transactions in dollars seems to be undermining um, this kind of reserve system, this monetary system that we've spent the last however many years constructing. Do you yeah. agree with that sentiment and be like, where do we go from here? What are the implications of, of that unwinding? Petrodollar was created when the U.S. was a big importer of, of oil. And so the U.S. would raise interest mm -hmm. rates to get the oil price down because they'd be the biggest demand factor. So it was a natural sort of give and take in that market. The U.S. doesn't really import energy anymore. Uh, so it's not reliant on uh, Middle Eastern supplies. And I think that's been a big change. Um, and even when you look at natural gas prices in the States, they're way below natural gas prices in the rest of the world. And so um, rather than saying it's the end of the petrodollar and the dollar is going to be uh, disastrous, it's more the US doesn't need to import energy anymore. Um, if anything, you know, what I think makes more sense is you need, you do need a petro yuan, um, right? So you need the Chinese need to. I think that with Russia they've succeeded, and now it sounds like Saudi as well is to move uh, to Trump. You know, create a offshore market for yuan. The only problem they've got is they also need to open up the capital account um, so that people can get money out of China easily, um, and that hasn't happened yet. If something's going to happen with Taiwan, uh, you know, that's probably not going to happen for a while. So, yes, there's probably some big changes going on, but uh, I'm not sure if they're going to manifest uh, anytime in the, in the near future. I mean, uh, a lot of what I used to do when, when I was managing money was look at currencies. And ever since 2016-17, my old sort of uh, roadmap for currencies has set the dollar uh, the dollar has been assured, um, and it hasn't been. It's been anything but that. Uh, so, you know, again, it, it feeds into this this sense of a world changing, uh, and when you know, it's not the old world isn't dead yet, but the new world isn't quite born yet, uh, which is what makes investing <laughs> very tricky. If that makes sense. Hmm. Let's talk about another impact of the sanctions in general. So. 
obviously the sanctions being levied against Russia has crippled their economy, right? Uh, and it's not a certainty, but it's all but a certainty, right? That Russia is going to default, not just domestically, but actually on their sovereign bonds as well, which actually hasn't happened since 1918. The last time Russia defaulted in a major way, that was 1998. That was on the back of the Asian currency crisis. It kind of lit the lit the world on fire, right? It was a huge financial panic in general. And one thing that I can't figure out, Russell, is why more people aren't talking about this or viewing it as a systemic risk. So can you just talk to me about how you view that as a potential black swan event or, or risk for markets? Yeah, you're talking about Russia probably defaulting. I think you're probably right. So assets should react to that beforehand. But now we have this sort of clearinghouse model and the clearinghouses, um, they don't have a risk team particularly. And what they do is they price everything on really price action and, and liquidity. Uh, and so what you find happens a lot is that the big uh, changes in risk is not the change in price uh, or it's not done by the banks anymore. It's by the clearinghouse or something go, oh, actually this asset's just fallen 10%. Now it's much more risky. Everyone has to pay us more margin mm-hmm. and it becomes self-fulfilling and it happens almost after it's already happened. Uh, so a great example is COVID. So you had COVID hit China. You could see what happened in China. You started to see cases in the rest of the world and you're going, okay, well, this is really bad. And then you'd be looking at markets and it's like, uh, markets don't seem to be too worried about this. And then bang, you're like a straight line down, um, which then requires the central banks to come in and move everything the other way again. Um, and this is sort of my observation is that the markets, which used to be great predictive, uh, you know, a great predictive sort of facility of how the world works now sort of act, you've been, you know, act in reaction rather than predictive. So, uh, there's a famous sort of Oscar Wilde quote when he's asked, how do you go bankrupt? He said, very slowly, then very fast. So what he's saying is, you know, I started to get less credit worthy and suddenly I was bankrupt. What happens with clearinghouses is you go bankrupt overnight um, and with no indication beforehand. So how do you go bankrupt overnight? Uh, the sort of nickel one is a, a great example. Uh, Can you walk us through that example just for those who might not be familiar? Well, unfortunately, they haven't given us the full details of, of what went wrong there. Uh, so, you know, what we do know is there was a big... Uh, Chinese trader who was very short nickel. Now, he may have been long physical nickel, so he was hedging, he was just hedging out. Uh, but, you know, the price moves so much, you have to come up with a cash to hold on to those positions, which he didn't have. Uh, now, what should have happened in that case is that if, if, he, if he can't come up with the cash for that trade to meet the margin, his position should be taken off, off him and then sold into the market. Um, and then if there's a shortfall, the other members of the clearinghouse need to, to pony up the cash. That's what the, the rule, rule book says should happen. Um, now, what the LME has done is they decide, they realize that $100,000, which is where nickel price got, uh, the margin call was huge. Uh, and the clearinghouses hold very little capital. So they would have burnt through all of the capital at the clearinghouse and all the capital of that client. And so they then would have had to go and ask other members of the clearinghouse to put up money uh, to pay to pay into the clearinghouse. And they decided that they didn't want to do that, so they shut down the market and basically gave this guy some time to get pricing back. You know, to, they basically pushed the price back to 50K, which was a price that he could 
to pay out at. Um, now, like I said, we don't know about this guy, but you know, I think the re the way clearinghouses work is uh, they sort of have this this model where they look at historical relationships and they use that to try and encourage trading. And the biggest way they do that is through netting. So if this uh, if this nickel trader who was short nickel, he could have been. Uh, he could have had a long copper position, for example, at the same clearinghouse. And they would have gone, okay, well, nickel and copper moved together 50% of the time. So because you've got a, a short nickel trade and a long copper trade, we'll actually, because they tend to move together, we're going to let you have less margin. So um, for an example, right? So let's say he was like, uh, you know, short $3 billion worth of nickel. Uh, you normally you would need to let's say have you know 500 million of margin for that but if, if you short 3 billion of nickel and long 2 billion of copper right they go well they move together most of the time so we can reduce the margin mm-hmm. down to 100 or 200 because we're looking at the net amount you have in now of course the problem is when if right. nickel and copper go in the opposite direction or copper doesn't follow nickel up uh, or even worse if, went, if they went in the opposite direction uh, you end up owing even more money. Uh, and the clearinghouses don't think about that. They just look at what historically has happened. And what banks used to do very cleverly um, was they uh, these risk officers would be aware that when you have too much positioning in an asset, then fundamentals don't matter. It's just you know liquidity will force the assets to move that way. Uh, and my observation is that... Um, if we can, if you find anywhere where the clearinghouses have lent out too much money or too much leverage, um, then you can be almost guaranteed that the price action will be in one way. Uh, the question is just trying to work out where all the leverage is, um, and yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. The market now seems to be almost behind reacting to events, right? So in the COVID situation, I mean, I was not certainly paying attention to markets as closely as you were, but it did feel like oh, everything's fine. I'm kind of hearing about this COVID thing and. Uh, but then all of a sudden it was like, boom, right? Uh, kind of limit down a whole bunch of days in a row until the Fed sort of stepped in. And, you know, when you look at something like Russia in general, I just don't understand how there hasn't been a bigger reaction. So does this just mean that we're potentially behind the eight ball in eight ball here and uh, that risk hasn't been priced into markets? Or I've, like, what do you think? I think it's, in a, it's again on my Substack, but in a presentation um, from a couple of weeks ago, but what you can do is you can look at uh, Russian CDS, right, and Mexican CDS. So I like those two because they're both commodity mm. producers, um, both emerging markets, sort of middle mid tier emerging markets. <clears throat> so if you go back to 2013-14 when uh, Russia annexed Crimea, right, you were looking at Mexican and Russian CDSs. Russian CDS started to like weaken well before they did anything in Crimea. That makes sense. So the market, the, like I said, these risk officers at Goldman's or JP Morgan go, okay, we'd much prefer being Mexican assets than Russian assets here. It makes total sense, right? They're massing at the border. Let's get out right. of Russia into Mexico. Totally get it. This year, right? This year, Russian CDSs were below Mexican CDSs up until the moment they invaded Ukraine. So the market was like, yes, we've got this information, but we don't care. And then they did care suddenly. All I'm saying is that 
it's a huge change to, you know, so 13, 14, uh, you know, so that, you know, I personally, I preferred the 13, 14 type uh, uh, markets. It's markets I was used to making money in. So you could be, you could look at what was happening in markets and they'd be giving you information that you could then act on. Now what happens is nothing happens, nothing, the market doesn't give you any information. So you just got to learn to actually ignore the market and say, take your, your view and then just apply it uh, because it won't be priced into the markets. It's, it, it's the opposite of what you get taught and trained at. Um, well, I was anyway. Um, but looking at Russian CDSs you know, now and compared to previously really drives home how the markets have changed, how they price. Russell, is a logical extension of this fact that markets are no longer as forward-looking when they're pricing risk, does that necessitate more government intervention in markets? Because for instance, when banks are being forward-looking about pricing risk and they're saying, hey, we're a little bit more worried about this trade, we're going to make it more expensive, etc., that's almost a natural antibody, uh, right? And it'll force some traders out and make the, the pain eventually when the trade moves against them not as bad. Now what you have, like let's again return to the COVID situation, what you had was essentially multiple record limit down days in a row. And it's very easy to say, hey, you know, moral hazard and the Fed shouldn't have stepped in. It looked like the world was ending, right? So if we have more and more situations where clearinghouses are the one, clearinghouses are the one that are determining risk, you see all of a sudden everything happens at once. It just seems more likely to me that that's going to encourage and facilitate the intervention of, you know, governments, central banks, regulators, et cetera. Does that seem like a logical step to you? Oh, it's totally logical, and it's already happening. Um, even before COVID, uh, do you remember the repo spike in 2019? Um, it, it's, I read about it in your Substack. Yeah, but. so basically, the repo market, which is uh, the market for treasuries, basically stopped working. Um, and you know, according to my research, I'm almost certain this is true. It stopped working because the um, the banks suddenly realized that clearinghouses were lending loads and loads of money to like hedge funds on the other side. And what had been shown uh, with clearinghouses is that when the, when these traders blow up, uh, it's the other members of the clearinghouse that, that lose money. And that was the banks. And so they're like, we're going to step away from this because it's A, they're mispriced and we don't like how it's pricing. We're going to pull back. And the Fed came in and did repo operations to fill in that gap. Um, and so the irony of the whole clearinghouse model is I think they, the regulators pushed it because they didn't want to do bailouts, right? They, they didn't like it was too big to fail. They didn't like banks being sort of uh, main thing, the main players in the market. But the reality is, is that the clearinghouses, because they mispriced risk so badly, uh, almost guarantee that the, the, the banks, the central banks have to bail out everyone all the time. Uh, the model is constant bailouts because the clearinghouses themselves hold almost no capital. Uh, so they're t- completely disincentivized uh, and the way they, you know, they, they get all their capital from their clients and they don't, they can't actually lose any money. I mean, it's a great business. Um, but again, government mandated sort of monopoly. I mean, that's the problem is if the food inflation and other inflation continues to be an issue and the central banks do actually have to tighten interest rates dramatically, or bond markets do sell off, um, the sort of collateral damage everywhere else is going to be massive. Um, I think, you know, 
as I sort of mentioned before, I think China's the first one to go. They've sort of basically said, we're going to protect the currency, we're going to protect real wages, and we don't care about the stock market. Uh, and what you've seen is you know, the Chinese sort of stock market being very weak, very, very weak indeed. Um, I don't see that mm. particularly changing in the short term. You know, we kind of started this interview out by saying the investing world is changing. And it's really hard. There are so many different significant factors kind of moving in tandem. It's just hard to handicap all of them, right? When I look at the position of the Fed and central banks more generally today, they are, to put it mildly, I think, between a rock and a hard place, right? Uh, because they've got rising inflation, but they also kind of have this threat of A, you know, a recession looming on the horizon and B, potential war that it's it's the, you know, it's the job of the central bank to finance, right? So these are two very kind of conflicting viewpoints. I want to make the connection between the job of the feds to fight inflation and potentially breaking something out there in, in markets, right? So if you, again, rewind the clock back to COVID and when the central bank, the Fed had that like historic intervention, right? QE forever, financial bazooka times a million. What, what they actually cited was um, a um, non-functioning treasury market, right? That COVID has had essentially broke the functioning of the deepest, most liquid market on earth, which suddenly wasn't looking so deep and liquid. Three months ago, we were talking about how seven rate hikes, right? Potentially a 50 basis rate hike versus 25, that was going to break the economy and break markets. Now we have a situation where we've essentially frozen out. I don't know where Russia is in the terms of GDP, like 10th largest, top one of the top 10 largest countries in the world. How do we get a situation? How does the Fed or Western countries more broadly, how do they fight inflation and clamp down on some of these issues without breaking things in financial markets? It's a great question. I thought, you know, normally it's, you know, historically speaking, when you get a spike in the oil price and spike in commodities, that's when the Fed becomes more willing to break things, if that's that's the right word. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that would be, you know, what I think we would be, uh, you know, should be getting close to it in some ways. Um, one thing I would like to say, though, you know, he's talking about the treasury market not working. Again, that is a clearinghouse issue uh, because the clearinghouses had given hedge funds so much leverage to do uh, interest rate relative value trades on the treasury market uh, is that when COVID hit, margins went up, initial margins went up. And so you need cash. They haircut everything else. And you had all these other hedge funds on the other side. Because um, I remember I was trying to sell treasuries uh, during that. And mm. in the old days, in the old days, normally you can call up a uh, you know, big bank and sell them like that instantaneously. During COVID, you know, you had to wait uh, a couple of hours for them to get back to you. No one wanted to have any of those assets on their balance sheet. Um, so this again shows you how a clearinghouse has changed the the way markets work, in my view. Um, you know, so that's that is the thing. The you know, I mean, it is a, a valid question. Is like uh, you know, people often say this is you know why. You know, why do you want the why do you want to create a recession? You know, with the unemployment and everything else that that causes. Uh, you know, what is wrong with Fed policy? You know, of just goosing. Uh, you know, keeping the asset prices high uh, and supporting the economy that way. And you know, that that is ultimately comes. It's a political question, right? Um, yeah, it's a very big. And it's been a political question for a while. I mean, you know. How you know how 
if you look at, for me, I've always struggled with it because at least if you go back to like the dot-com bubble, right, mm-hmm. when we had rising stock market, at the top of the dot-com bubble, the US was running like a fiscal surplus, right? It was paying down debt. Uh, now, we, you know, we're like record low uh, unemployment, record stock market, oh, it's off a bit, right? But not much. Uh, and it's like huge, huge deficits. Um, how do you square that circle? You know, and ultimately, it's basically the only way I can do that is that the you know the government the governing ideology behind the states now is to always just have profits rising, and whatever policy creates rising profits is okay. The opposite, <clears throat> and that is. The change from like in the 50s, 60s and 70s, where as long as wages were always rising, everything else would be okay. It's sort of like in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, we've had, we've just got to have rising profits and then everything else would be okay. That's been the big change. And the question then is, you know, at some point, does it become, you know, re- need rising wages again to be the more important political factor? Um, and it is odd. You would think in a, in a functioning democracy, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, rise of raising wage rates, uh, uh, and keeping real wages high would be a political vote winner. Um, you know, but it so far hasn't happened. So it's, 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 it's tricky. Yeah. That is a, that is a really tricky part about it. Um, it's, it's all, I always get caught up in that because it sort of feels illogical. You talked about, in general, one of the big changes that, that could happen as a result of these sanctions and the confiscation of Russians, Russian central bank assets is uh, other central banks looking to diversify out of treasuries into gold. Do you see that as a thesis playing out? What are your views on gold? For the first time in a very long time, I think gold looks all right. Uh, you know, as a, you know, I, I can't help but feel that a lot of central banks will look at what has happened to Russia and say, well, actually, U.S. treasuries are not safe assets. Um, uh, you know, they, they can take them away if they just, you know, to be fair, Russia invading Ukraine is an extreme, extreme event. But now you've proven that uh, a central bank can not get access to those reserves, um, which will definitely make them less attractive. Uh, and... You know, so I, I sort of wonder what the Chinese are going to do with all their treasuries, uh, particularly if they yeah. do have plans for Taiwan. They know they're not going to get access to them. So, you know, they're probably going to be trying to move them into assets that they can access or are safer. And, and one of the things that's been very noticeable is Chinese foreign reserves have not risen for the last few years. Um, I think they're actually actively trying not to buy U.S. treasuries anymore and rather let their currency appreciate. But again, this... For me, uh, that is a sign that the Chinese are focusing on raising real wages in China, uh, far more than other places. Um, buying foreign reserves is a way of keeping your currency weak uh, to benefit your exporting uh, exporters and corporates, is my view. Uh, I think China has moved to this one where they want to just keep wages going up. Uh, so they've been reducing foreign reserves anyway, but, uh, you know, it. The idea of the U.S. Treasury as a safe haven is is getting more and more difficult to sustain. Um, you know, the Fed rate raised twenty five basis points when inflation is like seven eight percent. 
the U.S. government's spending money like crazy, and now the foreign reserves are not actually your foreign reserves if the U.S. government decides they're not. These are not. This is all unattractive uh, for me. I, it makes it treasury is very unattractive in my view, um, and so we're. At, I think you know, like like I said, I think it's a difficult environment because a lot of assets look wrong. Uh, wrong price and I think what we've seen is they they suddenly moved to the correct price in like a very sharp uncontrolled way which is what the regulators have forced upon us by using clearinghouses. So just to make sure that I'm understanding that correctly if everything is essentially priced off of the 10-year let's just say every every asset in the world is priced in some way shape or form off the the U.S. 10-year if the reserve assets shift from being U.S. treasuries to something like gold the repricing, I assume most financial assets, let's say, would move in the wrong direction <laughs> for most people. Is that the correct interpretation of those words? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, you would be favoring real assets uh, over financial assets, which is broadly speaking, being the, what's happened over the last year or so. Last question here. I almost don't want to, but I, but I got to. What do you think about crypto, Bitcoin, uh, running into this next decade and in investing situation? I must say, I was surprised to see crypto not doing better uh, when uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. I'll be honest with you. I mean, people ask me about crypto. I mean, I don't. I'm not a technologist. So, but uh, when I looked at it, you know, mm-hmm. the first big, huge move in crypto in 17, 2017, um, it really captured people's. Uh, the, the imagination of people. You know, that coincided with like capital controls in China. So the Chinese were sort of saying, you can get your money out. And it felt to me that you know, crypto really benefited from flows out of China uh, you know, because it became a way of doing that. So I just sort of assumed that when you, know, you started to see controls being placed in, uh, on Russian assets, uh, you might see something similar. Um, that was just a basic assumption. Um, you know, the mm. problem the problem with everything these days is, you know, when you have negative rate, negative real rates, so where they are at the moment, right? It's very hard right. to know what is, what is liquidity driven and what is actually real, right? And that is the real issue. When you don't know what's, what's real, it's, you know, when rates are so low, it's very, very hard. What even makes it more difficult is like, uh, you know, the U.S. government is spending so much money to keep growth strong and going. You know, uh, at what point does that become an issue? At what point do they actually, you know, embark on austerity, right? Uh, and cut the amount of spending that they're doing. You know, at what point does the bond market just sort of say, I don't fancy this anymore. I think... In some ways, Russia invading Ukraine does the U.S. a favor because it makes it harder to get away from the U.S. dollar. Um, but you know, that was always my theory: is that China can, you know, take over from the U.S. You know, maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Um, but all I would say is, current U.S. policy doesn't make it harder for China to uh, become the next reserve currency. If that makes sense, you know, it's it's a policy that seems to I'm- be encouraging it. Whether that, you know, I think maybe it's, U.S. has a lot of soft power, which maybe keeps it in place for much longer than what we think is possible. But it is, it is curious, uh, you know, and it'd be, it's like all these things in finance that you, you, 
everything always takes much longer to happen than you think it's going to. But when it happens, it always happens quicker than you think it's going to happen. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we're, I think we're in that type of environment now. I don't want to try to summarize this argument, but folks out there should listen to the recent interview that Grant Williams did with Luke Groman, where they discussed this. Um, and there were other points in history, right, where different central bankers, let's say Volcker, right, at a period of time, made very different decisions, right? Because there's this natural tension between being the issuer of the reserve currency, you have to support, you know, you want to support the dollar, right, which is kind of more international needs, but then there are domestic needs that sometimes conflict with that. In the past, we've made the decision to some support the dollar sometimes, uh, you know, at the blanking here, whatever, the not to benefit the domestic situation. And now we're prioritizing the domestic situation, ironically, at a time where actually we probably need to support the dollar. So it's just, it's, I'm not going to try to summarize the point. You should go listen to the interview, but it, it kind of gets into, Russell, what you and I just covered here. Um, and I think it would make some a fantastic follow-up. We are already over time here. You've already been super generous with us. You've got, I, I, I got to, usually I'll let you plug it, but you have a great, I want to plug Russell's Substack here. Guys, if you haven't come across this, really, really great writing. Um, I know, Russell, you've been really focused on kind of uh, talking about a lot of what we covered today, right? So clearing houses and uh, how they are yeah. pricing risk differently. But if folks want to find out, find out your Substack or more about you, like what's the best way for them to, to do that? Look, it's uh, www.russell-clark.com. Um, and the Substack, I mean, the Substack has a lot of free stuff, has some paid stuff as well. Uh, I like to get paid because it, it helps motivate me to get out of bed in the morning. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I'd just be very lazy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of my attempt to try and understand where we're going to in this world because it's not the same world that we're, we're used to. Um, and I find it easier for me to write and publish and, and you know, so, and it, it's written from the perspective of someone who's got some money to invest and is trying to think about how and where to invest it. Um, so I think it's interesting that way. Um, and my observation is that, uh, you know, I do, I do a lot of research. Uh, uh, I try and do like real primary research. That's interesting. Um, I think there's a, there is a genre of, you know, financial stuff, which is like cut and paste, whatever it's, and then hot take on whatever is happening today. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I'd much rather sort of longer term, bigger trend change stuff, because I think it's more interesting. There's more money in it if you get it right. Um, uh, and, you know, at the moment, it's sort of trying to work out exactly what's going on. But it feels to me we're at that sort of big change in, in sort of big historic change in the world. Um, if you get it right, then things will be fantastic. And strangely, uh, yeah, I mean, I often look at Warren Buffett and think he recognized the change from pro labor to pro pro capital and built a business that all about capital accumulation. And he's done it, you know, and got the politics absolutely right. Um, I just wonder if we're going to a new world. Uh, we'll see. We shall see. All right, Russell, thank you so much for coming on. These conversations are fantastic. I hope we can do it again soon. My pleasure.